Hello and welcome to Las Blancas Podcast. I'm your host, Om Arvin, and today I'm joined by Yash Thakur to talk about Real Madrid's 2-1 victory over Rosenborg in the second round of UWCL qualification. This is the second leg, of course, of our final qualifying stage, I guess you can say, before we were able to see whether we qualified for the group stage or not. And because we won 5-1 on aggregate, 3-0 in the first leg, 2-1 in the second leg at home at the Alfredo Di Stefano Stadium, we have progressed to the group stage. And honestly, after the first leg, that result was never really going to be in doubt. It was just, how would we go about doing it in the second leg? Would we make it more complicated than we need to? Than we needed to? Were we going to steamroll them? And I got to be honest. I mean, I told you, Yash, I was like, I, I, I didn't think before the game that there was going to be that much interesting in the second half because I thought, the game would basically be over by then and be comfortable, be sailing through because, you know, obviously always respect every opponent that's out there, but on the basis of what happened in the first leg, it just looked like there were light years of difference in terms of the individual quality on the pitch. And I don't know if anything about the second leg necessarily changes that, but Rosenborg were certainly a lot more competitive and they ended up drawing the first blood, but we'll get to that. Of course, Yash, How's it going, my man? We saw some interesting stuff today, and uh, we got the win, which is most important. Yeah, I mean, what mattered at the end was us progressing to the group stage because that is the goal of all of this. We want to be playing those Champions League games, so happy that we are we have progressed again for a second year, second straight year. That is nice, but yeah, the the performance overall second half was a bit better, but. Uh, we'll get into it but yeah uh, there are areas of improvement that we clearly saw and we clearly saw where uh, we lacked in certain areas in terms of the profiles we have in terms of the uh, combination of players that we can use uh, so yeah looking forward to breaking it down and just happy that we have progressed by far the most interesting storyline going into this one was what lineup Torreo would go with. Because we saw in the first leg, and given that the match versus Granadilla was cancelled on the weekend due to weather conditions, I think it was like a cyclone issue. So because of that, the last lineup we saw was Weir as this kind of false winger thing on the right-hand side, which led to basically having two number 10s. So versus Rosenborg in the first leg, that was Zornoza, on kind of the left half space, we're in the right half space. And then you had, as a total pivot behind them, Freya Siri and Toledi, with Freya getting her debut. And the question was, was Toril going to do that again? And I kind of hoped he was going to. I mean, obviously it worked really well in the first leg for reasons we described on that podcast. But I wanted to see an actual starting lineup with Maite and Weir together to see what that would look like. I mean, we saw some of it in the second half with subs and stuff, but it, it you know, by then, like the game was kind of comfortable and it was like, all right, let, let's see what it's like from the start. I, I, cause I was really intrigued because I thought that was the way you could get those two in the lineup in a way that made sense. You and I were kind of talking about it right before we started the podcast. It didn't necessarily work out in the way that we might have envisioned in this game, although. Personally, I don't think that rules it out from working in the future. I just think there were things about 
the way this game played out that just didn't make anything we were doing look that good or as good as it did in the first leg. But yeah, Toril does end up going with that same kind of scheme. I mean, it's largely the same 11. There's a couple rotations. I mean, Lucia comes in for Kenti at right back and then Maite comes in for Freya. So Zornoza gets moved into the double pivot and you have Maite as the nominal number 10, probably one other rotation that I'm missing. It might be Ivana. I can't quite remember, but what did you think about the lineup and the idea of Maite coming in? Yeah, in terms of uh, the lineup, first when I saw that Maite was in, I was pretty happy. I mean, she was the captain as well. So I was pretty intrigued, uh, I, I would say, uh, because uh, as we discussed on the previous part as well, the potential in that sort of partnership between two intricate playmakers uh, is something really exciting. So it was... Uh, gonna be interesting to see how it play, uh, plays out on the on the pitch for a longer period of time when they actually start the game and don't like we don't see just the flashes of them when they uh, come off the bench so it was uh, pretty intriguing to see plus what uh, i was more intrigued by was uh, how would the double pivot fun- function here because uh, zornos and toletti does sound like a good pair because it would give us like that sort of defensive solidity and a deep playmaker to who can like pull off long passes from the back and uh, Toleti just working out two ways. It didn't quite work out that way, but I mean there are other reasons for it as well. And like uh, on paper, while it should have worked out, there were also clear reasons why it wouldn't. So yeah, I mean not really surprised with Lucia's inclusion as well. Uh, because I mean, she she has been whenever she has got the chance this season, she has done uh, pretty well. I, I I think so. Her inclusion was okay. That that rotation made made sense. And Athena, Ware, and Esther, I think that is probably uh, gonna be our like Athena, Ware, Esther, and probably one of Feller or Olga is probably gonna be our front four for most of the parts. So yeah, I mean, uh, in terms of lineup, no real surprises for me. So. I think from the beginning, we could kind of tell that this was going to be a bit of a different game, not just for the goal, which we'll just describe right now, but for the way that Rosenborg were approaching things. But in the goal itself, we're talking about the eighth minute, uh, a transitional scenario where Rosenborg are able to break down the right-hand side. You have Hansen kind of squaring up Svevo one versus one, then passes it back. It looks like Things are about to settle down, and then they just pass it back to Hansen. Sveva kind of gets caught sleeping in terms of just allowing Hansen to receive with that much space, but more in the sense that she was just positioned like a yard, half a yard too high. So when she goes to recover it to Hansen, Hansen has the separation to put a ball into the box. And I'm just not quite sure what our center backs are doing to allow Nautness to get free so easily on goal to where, I mean, it's a brilliant shot location right in front of Misa, taken on the volley, and and there's not that much Misa can do about it. So that's like, within eight minutes already, Rosenberg are thinking, can we have an epic comeback here? I mean, it's it's still highly improbable at this point, but they're in a situation where they've had a dream start. It's Sousa, really, who who ends up losing Nautness, and Real Madrid are, are kind of shocked at this point, and it was far from an ideal start. I mean, 
And it was more than just the goal. I, I mean, it was from here where things really kicked on for Rosenborg because I think they got the confidence and they're like, all right, let's go. Let's give them a match. We're here. We're playing Real Madrid away from home. Why not? This could be a legendary moment for us. And they just did a lot of things right that made things tough for us. So the one hand was the defensive structure change. So it was this pretty standard 4-4-2 in the first leg that we just carved open, right? I mean, they we with the way we had our 11, which I don't think they expected us to do, to be fair, with where coming inside, all the overloads in midfield, I, I mean, the double pivot they had could not handle it. They didn't know whether to sink off to protect the options between the lines or step up to control Toletti and Freya. And, and Toletti just carved them open with vertical passes. Weir could turn with time and space. And it was basically all over for them before the game even began. Their one ray of hope was some turnovers with the high press. And that was pretty much it. I mean, we kind of honestly just destroyed them offensively, right? And it's pretty clear they learned their lesson from that. Removed one player from the front line, put him in midfield, and went for a 4-1-4-1 defensive block. So not only did they have more options in the center of the pitch, it was also staggered. So they were better set up to defend players who were going to sit in between the pockets between defense and midfield, right? So right off the bat, there, there was a counter to this idea of overloading the center of the pitch with two number 10s, a, a false winger in Weir and Maite. And it just became a bit harder for us to find that easy pass to break lines. And the question then from there was like, all right, what are we going to do versus that to then break down that block? Can we be, be a bit more clever to find those options? So they kind of raised the bar of execution from us to be able to go on and create. And then they were just really good about raising the intensity and making things transitional. They also pressed like they did in the first leg. And we just kind of played into it, right? We talked about this in the Valencia game. And Yash had his little thing about Zornoza. And I think he was right. But we also talked about, at least from my perspective, how in that specific case, we just ended up getting the better of all those transition moments, right? And so even though probably we wanted, would have wanted to slow things down and control it, on the balance of things, it really played out in our favor. We'll talk about what happened in the second half because that was a different case. But in the first half, I think I would say it was slightly in our favor. But Rosenborg were really coming the other way and troubling us in transition. And for every good attack we had, there was a turnover and they were coming the other way. And with the wide players that they had, I mean, I was really impressed with their wingers, Hansen and Josendal. Josendal in particular, and they actually had the tools to, to hurt us in behind. And I mean, not necessarily that Valencia didn't. We, we talked about the exciting players they have, but they had the tools and I think the execution and game plan on the day. I, I think they were just very focused about what it is they had to do to try to damage us, right? First was the defensive structure. There was their defensive style and intensity to raise the potential for turnovers. And then they were just very sharp and kind of automatic in the way they played through some patterns that didn't really give us time to reorganize ourselves after a ball loss. Some of that was standard wing combinations, you know, just really quick to work your way up the pitch. The most dangerous stuff was immediately playing that ball in behind to a well-timed run, attacking with space in behind the fullbacks. And it's not even necessarily that 
our fullbacks were caught out of position a lot of times. It's just that they're spacing behind the back line and they did it so quickly and their wide players were quick enough and the pass was good enough and the time was the, the, the run was well-timed enough that they were consistently able to get in behind us and get into one versus one situations. And I thought offensively Lucia was great and we'll talk about her separately because I think she deserves it, but she, she, she lost out to Yozendal a number of times and it was kind of the same case for Sveva on the other side versus Hansen, or, although the bigger battle was Yozendal versus Lucia just because Rosenberg were getting the ball over to that side more often. So I'll stop there. I think those are the things that Rosenborg did that made that first half a lot more difficult. You can add to that if you want to in terms of things you saw Rosenborg do, or you can move on and talk about, and I think this is what you really want to talk about, how Real Madrid kind of responded to that and what maybe were some of the issues with our approach. Yeah, so in terms of what happened uh, with Rosenborg, how they came out with, with the plan, uh, with a slight change in plan, that I actually described in the previous uh, part as well. Like th- this is how they like to play. They like to go into this four five one sort of block and just look for those vertical passes because they have those sort of wide players and notness as well who can like hurt uh, opposition in these transition sort of situation. And that is what they did. And the execution on the day was uh, pretty good as well. Josendal caused us trouble uh, last game uh, as well. So it wasn't. Uh, really that surprising to see her do well here as uh, today but yeah i mean in terms of what went wrong for us a, a lot of it I, I feel is is down to our execution i feel like we made a lot of suboptimal decisions it, it's not just that zoronosa toleti double pivot cannot work it, it's not that they have the tools to make it work on paper if you look at uh, the ideals that uh, the the strengths of each player it makes sense because yeah Zornosa can get caught in transition but then you have Toletti to help her out there uh, in possession you have Zornosa who can play those sort of all you know long balls from the back to find our wingers uh, for us or uh, play that incisive pass from deep to find runners in behind so they have the tools to make it work. It's not like Toletti or Zornosa are uh, like pushovers in possession when playing short or medium ranges. But the execution today, I don't know what, what it was, but there were so many suboptimal decisions. Like whenever we got on the ball, instead of like when there was an easy pass, we were always looking to go for that one Hollywood pass that would like get you on the headlines or something. I, I don't know. But I saw it a lot. It's not just with Zornosa, not just with Toletti, but even at times with Maite and Veer as well, there were moments where like we could have just held on to ball a little longer and just, you know, settle things down a little instead of causing another turnover on which they can capitalize. We did not do that. I think after the first goal, the uh, tempo of the game changed and it was controlled by how Rosenberg wanted to uh, wanted this game to pan out. And it wasn't ideal uh, for us because they were hurting us, as you explained as well. They were hurting us on these transition, uh, transition situations. Like our, uh, our fullbacks were not having the best game defensively. Savava had a lot of trouble with Hansen throughout the game. She was unable to like close her down uh, completely. Lucia on the offensive end, while she had a good game, 
defensive again coming up against Josendal wasn't the easiest task for her and they were finding like it wasn't just you know it wasn't just the vertical passes uh, that that they were they were not afraid of going long as well like they would create this isolation with the fullback and the winger and they would just hoof the ball in behind there was a lot of space in behind and they would just attack it like they the white players they had are really good uh, in one v one situations and they were able to create that separation very easily. So I, I tweeted about this as well. Like there are lot there were a lot of suboptimal decisions which I don't know. Like it may be a blip because these players we know like they are more than capable of making the right decision more often than not. So maybe this is one of those uh, one of those moments where all of them make uh, poor decisions. And I, I feel like uh, since Rosenberg scored that early and we were like having a couple of good moments before that, like uh, until eight, eight minutes, there were moments where we were able to reach the final third, unable to create, but we were able to reach the final third, sustain uh, their pressure as well. Uh, but as soon as they scored, I think things changed a bit. We got a little bit nervy and we wanted to hit them back as quickly as possible. So everything that we did from that moment on, uh, until like 40 43rd minute or like entire half i would say was pretty rushed uh, it lacked that sort of control which is which wasn't ideal it didn't like let's say it didn't uh, help us uh, one bit but yeah i mean towards the end of the half then one moment of brilliance by atenea but uh, and then where puts it away but it uh, gets called for offside but other than that we did create opportunities there were moments where we were able to create chances uh, like Lucia had uh, some good moments in the first half as well where her cross uh, from the right side was headed by Esther and it uh, went went off. Then there was a set piece chance as well by Veer. So it wasn't like we weren't creating chances, but for every chance that we created, Rosenberg were also able to like enter our, our third and like cause some trouble. So it was like... Uh, we were exchanging blows, but none of the team were like proper uh, able to control the game, I would say. I mean, there were a lot of games throughout the short history of Real Madrid Femino where I think we've seen something similar to this trend. And because it's over such a long period of time, I think there are a lot of separate reasons why. And I mean, in this specific case, I think it's it's down to a couple of things. So you already kind of mentioned that there's the impact of going down one nil, right? And we sort of want to wake up and say, okay, all right, we didn't expect this. We need to put ourselves back in charge and ensure that we don't start talking about a surprising comeback here. And so there's this urgency that, all right, we got to hit him back as fast as possible. That's one factor. The other factor is this is what Rosenborg wanted. And you always have to give credit to the opposition for an environment they wanted and that they executed for especially when I think they did a lot to get it there, right? When you're defending well in terms of being able to generate turnovers, you're pressing high, especially on goal kicks. When you are playing direct yourself, which is going to speed up the pace of the game, right? You're all doing things that are naturally going to make, to a certain extent, you can't avoid the fact that the game is going to get faster and more transition, right? I, I, that's, that's the other effect. The other one is, is there were genuine moments where we were actually just breaking through them like i don't think their press was actually super super effective in generating a bunch of turnovers and disrupting our build-up i think it was more effective in speeding up the pace of the game and 
because of that, Real Madrid had plenty of moments where they were actually just able to kind of play clean through. I mean, there were a lot of nice moments where Toledis or Noza short passes, weird dropping off to get involved. I mean, Maite had some nice moments, you know, with, with their close control to get out of areas. And I mean, we, we, we really had the technical ability to build through the press most of the times. And we did, it's kind of when we broke the first few lines of pressure, what was our decision going to be there? And it's kind of, we just, we just saw, you know, the, we had the optimistic view all the time when we were playing into the final third that, all right, we can create a chance here. Let's play the risky ball. And there's a very fine line you have to balance in those moments, which is what is the cost benefit versus going for this opportunity versus not going for it. And in a lot of people's minds, it's, it's going to be, you need to always go for it because what's the offensive value of not going for it and then setting up and letting the defense reorganize. And a lot of times I have argued, especially with the men's side in the past, like we need to, we need to take greater risk vertically, especially in the Zidane era. But there's also a defensive value to not making that decision and going short and resetting and calming things down. And it's that's, I think, what people miss, right? There's a defensive value to doing things in possession versus an offensive value. And it's about balancing them that makes someone what you would call a controller or a tempo controller. And I think for those moments, right, because you have those additional factors that I think they're just natural, right? I think they're going to affect the game no matter what. But in these moments, I think this is where we would be in control, where I just don't think we quite have the profile of someone who really makes decisions in favor of the conservative option, right? I think we have a bunch of players who are also creative, who are also brilliant, and who, you know, the the past of their careers kind of determines that they're always going to go for the Hollywood ball. I mean, we've talked about this with Zernoz in the past, Toledi, I think she does a lot of things, but I wouldn't necessarily say she's someone who is a temple controller, at least as the primary option. And then when you have Weir and Maite ahead of you, whose job is to accelerate the players attacking midfielders, you've kind of just, you, you kind of have a recipe for that type of game to just have an end-to-end contest. I will say it didn't help that at the back, you had Sousa kind of doing some crazy things. I mean, Yash, you've been talking about it for a couple podcasts now about the decisions you make, some of the errors. Um, you kind of mentioned how like you're more worried what happens after the first error. And sh- we kind of talked about when she made her first error. And since then, I don't know, maybe I'm imagining it. It seems like she's making a little bit more. A- admittedly, this game was a weird one in that if there was going to be turnovers at the back, you'd expect this one to be. There were some strange decisions with her carrying where it's like, couldn't we just play a back pass there, right? Like there, you, you have an easy outlet to the fullback, easy outlet back to Misa, just play it and let's move from there. And she just tried to kind of run through defenders and it didn't necessarily work out. So that's just another factor. So you kind of put all of it together and you see how we get to a place where there's really no control and it's whoever can make the most of the semi-transition opportunity. And in the first half, it was kind of even. I mean, I would say it was slightly in our favor because... We had a particular moment, for example, where Toletti point blank range, but not exactly a point blank quality chance because it bounced really high up on her. And she kind of had to like a weird acrobatic stretch to get to the ball. And it was a more difficult chance than initially looked. We had that type of opportunity. Esther hit the bar from a, from a free kick. 
I mean, he had a couple of close offside calls. I mean, Esther was very involved in terms of getting on the crosses in the box. Lucia's delivery was great. Sveva had one moment where she put a good cross into the box. And then Rosenborg had some moments the other end. The goal, a couple long shots that came close to troubling Misa's goal. One cross where Misa ill-advisedly came out, didn't get to it. Luckily, the person at the far post couldn't quite get to it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that was about kind of the way the first half went. What else do you want to talk about there in terms of what happened in the first 45 minutes? Yeah, around, I feel like we have covered most parts. Like, there were slight tweaks as the game went on in a hunt to, like, gain better control. We saw, like, players exchanging position, which is, like, normal. That happens in most most of the games. So, like, around 40th minute, uh, I, I think we're uh, then started like because now in in our formation for the day it was maite at number 10 right and we're uh, on the right flank so what happened off the ball was we go into our 442 shape and maite was joining up as there uh, in our press it wasn't as good as uh, the combination of Esther and where has been so far so like around the 40th minute that changed now where was like stepping up to form the two and Maite was uh, dropping off to the left because Athenia has now shifted to the right around the 40th minute and that is when like things uh, start happening a lot more most of our attack throughout the game went through our right side until like Olga came on and there were some good moments between Olga and Athenia on the uh, on the left flank in the second half uh, most of our attack went through the right Athenia was one of the uh, primary uh, reason for that because she just had a splendid game. We'll probably talk about her again, <laughs> just like in every pod, it is becoming a, a a routine sort of. But yeah, that was one of the changes that happened uh, with we're now stepping up to form the front two and uh, Maite dropping towards the wide wide area and Athenia shifting towards the right hand side. Uh, then as as uh, I feel like. We need to talk about the uh, fourth substitution that we had to make in the first half because of Toleti's knock. I hope it's nothing serious. We don't know nothing. Uh, we don't know anything as of yet. But uh, then Tere comes on, and I feel like Tere, like given how the first forty minutes had panned out, we probably needed uh, Tere in that double pivot, like from the beginning, because Tere is someone who wouldn't necessarily always go for that long ball or for that line breaking pass she is very happy to easily like circulate the ball in short and medium ranges plus she has the ability to like uh, switch play as well which we'll get in the second half because that is a very important in my opinion so um, Tere comes on Tere has a decent few minutes then I don't know like I don't have much in the notes uh for that towards the end like i mentioned before as well towards the end we have uh, an individual brilliant moment by athenia in the box like she uh, swivels past a couple of players and retains the ball but just as she is about to shoot i think it takes a deflection of a rosenberg player to fall in the path of uh, where before she shoots but i don't know where uh, is in a is in an offside position she gets the shot off it goes into the goal but uh, it's called back for offside so nothing more to add I, I just feel like 
we have covered most of the parts that has happened in the first half just again credit to rosenberg for the way they came out and the way they executed their plan today because the way they were clogging up the center of the pitch that was like impressive the lines were so compact and i i, I know this because they can do that but they were like completely like forcing us out wide and we weren't like we were able to create chances especially from the right but they they manage it really well to like just counter our uh, initial strategy of having two number 10s behind their uh, between their like defensive and midfield lines so yeah credit to them but the second half is much more interesting i feel i actually kind of feel like the first half is more interesting so that so now i'm excited to see what you have to say about, say about the second half so i just completely forgot and this was the main thing i wanted to talk about because you mentioned the swap between where and my day i thought that happened way earlier but i haven't had the rewatch like Things started to get very messy again because of how transitional it was, but it kind of felt like, I don't know, 25, 30 minutes where and Atenea swapped. Um, I said where and Maite swapped earlier. I mean, where and Atenea swapped. And it's weird because I don't really like what it did from a balance perspective, but Atenea, who was already playing pretty good, got even better and she ended up deciding the game that I'm tempted to say that it was just a net positive because of what it did for Atenea, right? And you always have to balance what you personally like from kind of an abstract perspective versus what actually happened on the pitch. But I think it's worth discussing why it looked kind of weird, at least from my perspective. So Maite, I don't think she was having a bad game. And I don't think I would say she had a bad game overall. Um, I mean, Arancha said she was the second best player in the game which, I, I mean, I don't know about that. I, I felt like it was, it was a bit more mixed than that, but I thought she was fine. But we couldn't necessarily see the full extent of her influence in the beginning because Rosenborg were defending the way they were defending. And then when Weir comes over to that side, Weir stays mighty involved, right? And she's having a great time. But because Weir, from the left, is going to be like how she normally plays if it was a 4 3 3 or something, which is operate high in that left half space, Maite's role just it kind of disappeared, right? And it was not like the double pivot kind of adjusted to more of a, a mid uh, to more of something like a four three three. It was just very like strange because if you picture it in your head, it's Esther striker, Atenea on the right, Sveva pushing up on the left, Weir as a left sided attacking midfielder, double pivot, and then Maite is just kind of somewhere on the left hand side, and I just felt. There was nothing really for her to do in a way that made sense, I think. And again, this is the thing with Maite is like she almost adheres to to like the original structure or the intended plan like too much. Like if that if that happened, like Maite was pushed to that side and Weir was there, Weir would have just gone to the right side. I feel like Maite really should have done that, but didn't. She just kind of it's like, all right, I'm going to adapt within my area. And I feel like she just kind of disappeared from the match a little bit, which I didn't super enjoy. But again, with things so transitional, with Athenea really getting to, to face up one, one versus one and go to her strong foot on the outside, I, I mean, we just kept producing and things kept happening. You mentioned the disallowed goal, but I didn't quite like what happened there with Maite. And I just feel like because of what we discussed defensively, Rosenborg's adjustments, the nature of the game, and then in the middle of the first half somewhere, I think, this swap happening it just was like we never actually got a good sample size 
of what the scheme would look like and and how it would help where it might take play together. So I don't know. That's why I feel like theoretically I see no problem with it. Theoretically it work it should work great. And at some point in the future I'd like to see it again and see what it looks like. But the way this game played out, there's not there's nothing really much you can point to and say, well, that's why, you know, that that was fantastic. And I think part of it is just the scheme changed entirely, right? With we're coming over to that side, it was like, well, you no longer have this two-two structure. It's like this weird two-one-one L-shaped thing with we're on that side. So I know you kind of said like you wanted to move on to the second half, and maybe this can lead us there because it's not like there were substitutions to to start the second half. But what did you think about? Just, I think, the Maite weird thing overall. And I mean, it's fine if you don't have a definitive answer because I don't know if the minutes we saw just requires you to be like, this works, this doesn't work. Um, but just what were the thoughts you had on it? And um, I think you kind of already talked about, you know, we are not the nail swapping, but if you want to comment a little more on that as well. I think we have discussed this before on, on a previous pod about how different players interpret uh their roles and in-game situations i feel like maite in that regard is a bit like one of those uh students who will follow the uh, the rule book uh, for for most of the times uh, i know like today's sample size isn't and this isn't based on like today's game but when uh she was even played on on the right flank last season as well there were moments where uh like when you see what where is doing um this season when she was first placed on the right flank compared to when Maite was placed first on the on the right flank it takes a bit of time for her to like uh, not like an entire game or something but it takes a little bit of time for her to adjust to uh, what is being in demand uh, demanded of her in in uh, you know in comparison to her surroundings at that point of time so she she's that sort of support player who would like who would always try to like provide that support wherever necessary and in however uh, fashion necessary so she'll always try to like complement other movements and that takes a little while for her to adjust when put in a different position where she's like coming to terms with what is being asked here and how she can like do her continue to do her role but like stick to the rule book as well so it's a weird thing like i don't think like maite cannot uh do those role cannot play those role because i have seen her play on the flanks i have seen her play in in the number 10 position she can play those role but yeah the interpretation of those role uh of that role like differs from her to how we are interpreted and given the context of our team given what is needed it, that might affect things how how things pan out for us so yeah i mean it's it's not a big deal we'll probably see this again with weir and uh, maite through in the season and i think most for most of the times like eight times out of ten it will work out in our favor like it it will look clean and it will look very incisive and pretty good so yeah i mean nothing to worry about i feel i mean it shouldn't be anything to worry about is my takeaway coming away from this game. It was, you know, maybe a missed opportunity to see what it really looked like, but it's not like you can't do this again. My only worry with it is that Maite so far has kind of had a short leash under Toril, right? And he hasn't necessarily done a whole lot to kind of carve out a role for her in the side. I mean, and that was the case last season when she had less 
spectacular competition in midfield. And now Weir has come in, now Toletti has come in. And I'm just mildly scared at this point that Toretti will just look at that and be like, eh, it didn't work out. You know, we move on. And there's no need to revisit that. And I think it would be a mistake not to find a way to get the best out of Maite in some circumstances in her best areas on the field. I mean, granted, it's not possible every single game given the quality we have in midfield now. And we talk about non-negotiable starters like Toledi and Weir. That only leaves one position unless we do something like Weir as a false winger and stuff like that, which is not going to happen every time, especially with Feller and Olga back from injury, who we saw in the second half. But it's just something I think we should keep an eye on. Um, but the last thing I'll say about it is I think the thing with Maite and, you know, following the instructions, I think that's true. I, I think that's also when maybe a little bit more explicit coaching kind of needs to happen there because it's curious that you can have such different results from the same nominal game plan, right? That just kind of suggests that it's out there for the players to kind of figure out how they want to make an impact from that situation. And Toril's approach is more of one of lineup optimization, a little bit more hands-off and saying, I'm going to put out the lineup that I think is balanced and it kind of has to come together the way I think the tendencies will play out. And in some cases that, that can work really well and you get a certain level of spontaneity mixed with balance that may not be possible if you were more instructive. But in some cases, like with Maite, I think you should just be like Maite, play inside or play across from Weir. If she comes over to this side, move to, you have the freedom, go and do it. Don't be afraid. You won't be reprimanded for that, right? I, I think that would go a long way to making Maite more effective in a variety of different situations because it's not like she doesn't have the skill set to be this free-roaming player who can adapt to where other people are positioned and stuff like that. I do think probably she needs to go ahead and the confidence from Toril, especially at this point in time where she's probably a little unsure of what her status in the squad is, to be like, you know, go and do your thing. So that's the final thing I'll say about it. I thought it was the most interesting part of the game in terms of what we can talk about and what we can, you know, look forward to in the future. So I spent some time on it, but we can finally move to the second half as as Yash requested. No substitutions, as I mentioned, but pretty much straight off the bat, 48th minute, we end up scoring. I think the interesting thing is at least, you know, like 10, 15 seconds before the play, it's not really transition, right? We're working the ball in triangles down the left. Then we switch play. It's a really nice pass out to Athenea. I forgot who did it. And this is where the fullback from Rosenborg, and it's always really tough on switches for fullbacks, right? It, it's really kind of like either you get it right or you get it horribly wrong. And in this instance, the fullback's like, I'm going to step out to Athenea's first touch, right? Try to close her down, try to remove the space she has after receiving. And she's just half a step off. She's just not quick enough. It was a nice rapier-like pass over to Athenea. And as soon as the fullback makes that decision, she's caught out. On her second touch, Athenea just takes it past her. And there's all sorts of space down that flank all of a sudden. And Athenea, in the form that she's in right now, makes no mistake wonderful, wonderful cross to the back post. Weir flies in late with the run that's already being typical with the short amount of games that she's played for Real Madrid. 
and puts away a volley somewhat similar to the way Rosenborg actually scored versus us. And right, right there, equalizer one, one, probably from that point on Rosenborg don't really have a chance of progressing, but Real Madrid just kind of entered the ascendancy here. So Josh, you said the second half was more interesting from your perspective. Why was that? And was it because of things that happened from that goal onwards to the second goal? The thing that I found, like we were uh, having some trouble in uh, being able to break through them through the middle. So see, the thing is, uh, when when a team sets up in in this sort of a block, a four five one block that is very compact through the middle, you don't get much of the space, and then they shift across whenever like they are directing they are basically directing position to the wide areas right that is what they are trying to accomplish with with denying us those central areas uh, they are pushing us wide so that they can then try to isolate us and use the touchline as another auxiliary as another like hypothetical player there and cramp us for space or either push us back that is the two uh, concepts that they try to uh, accomplish with this so they were trying to do the same they were trying to push us to one of the flanks. Now, what we started doing a lot more and with a lot more success was we were able to switch play really quickly. Like if you look at all of our chances that have come in the second half, every single one of them has come from a switch off play. Every single one. Our goal, like play goes down to the left. Then quickly, it was Tere who made the switch. That is why I uh, touched upon in the first uh in in talking about in the uh about it in the first half that the, this switching ability is very important going into the second half because she switches the play then then i mean Athena just does her thing <laughs> she just takes a brilliant first touch goes at it and puts a puts an excellent cross where scores it but that is what happened like following that in in the 56th minute lucia played a cross from the right flank guess what it it happened with with a similar thing it was tere again the ball was on the left in in one second the ball we are able to move the ball towards the right and we have managed to create this isolation and space for either our fullback or our winger to cross the ball in lucia's cross is again great esther could not meet it this time in the box but that was the pattern then again for our second goal as well if if you look at our, our second goal it's the same thing. We are able to move the ball from one flank to the other really quickly. And that is what happens because when these sort of blocks, when, when they direct position towards wide areas, they shift, right? That is, that is what is like ideal. Ideally, that is what happens. They shift towards one side. And if you can then quickly relay it back and switch it to the other flank, you have managed to create uh, an isolation for your white players who are sticking wide because now the the entire block would have to shift from one flank to another and that is the moment where spaces can appear for you uh, that is the moment where runners at far post can be free and that is what happened that is what we tried to do and we executed it really well it wasn't a direct switch most of the times it was a player on the left playing it back towards one of our midfielders mostly Tere and Tere was just relaying it towards the wide areas I really liked that because that was the solution of it. it it was either that or we either produce a moment of individual brilliance from our wingers which happened as well the first goal Athenea produced that magical touch and then second goal as well Athenea produced some <laughs> again a magic 
in the box by, by that shoulder drop but yeah i mean that is the thing you either have like a player just take on one of the players and create that sort of separation and break that block or you have this sort of players capable of quickly switching play and then have these decisive wingers or fullbacks uh, give them space to then cross the ball in and have players running at the far post to attack it and that is what we did every single chance that we had in the in the second half came from one of these switches it was either tere that was ma- able to like receive it in the middle and quickly pass it on towards uh, towards the other flank or it was like even from the uh, on the second goal like let's let's let me just describe the second goal how it happened the ball comes uh, the ball is on the left hand side comes comes out to esther who is dropping deep she uh, she lays it off for where who now carries it towards the left uh, towards the right hand side and then athenia has stayed wide and she plays it uh, through through for her inner path and then she just does her thing this is the thing the play has again began on one side we have managed to create that and then we have managed to quickly move the ball towards the other side even though the second goal was a bit of a, a sort of a transition situation but that was the idea that we were trying to like go for and we executed it really well i felt so yeah that was that was the most interesting part for me and following that first goal uh, coming like inside first 5 minutes of the second half it really changed the momentum because now uh, the team felt like we were uh, we were on this and we could like now the momentum was with us so that that matters like game state matters we all know that and that shift of momentum happened as soon as we scored the first goal so then we just capitalized on that this is a thing that and i mean this is when you weren't really on podcast yash so i don't know how aware you are of this but last season the season before pretty much is when we started las bancas i've been complaining about how we don't switch play enough and this is a real problem in the osnar era where we just we'll go to one flank and we'll just get stuck there and we just try to force our way through when it's not possible and i just on my knees begging for there to be a circulation to the other side right just basic possession stuff just keep it moving shift the defense side to side then find the gap and we just wouldn't do it and it just killed me and so i think it is notable that the way we end up getting in front in this game is by the method that you mentioned which is through both these long switches of play but also the shorter less sexier ones where you take a couple passes go to the other side and if that turns out to be a trend i mean we have been, we've gotten steadily better as a possession unit as as has gone on but we've never been as good as we are now because of the players we have if this becomes a proper trend in the way we approach teams that i think is a massive step forward given how much i've complained about in the past like legit is is something i've been asking for forever um the other key thing is as you mentioned tede being the one to kind of orchestrate all of it you know i i don't know if i'd say tede is like tony cross type of profile but i think she probably is the closest we have to someone who is going to make those types of decisions i mean look to be fair the second half was still extremely transitional going up to the second goal i just think probably because we ended up scoring so early rosenborg just weren't able to handle it as well as they were in the first half and, and, and to a certain extent over time the better talent is just going to win those battles and we by far had the better talent um back to front to deal with transitions but 
the fact that those things were happening, as you mentioned, really notable and, you know, probably a bit sacrilegious, but I do think, and probably you and I have been quietly considering this before, but I'm wondering if the best midfield in a lot of situations is Tede Toletti Weir, if we're going to go with the three-person midfield and not do Weir somewhere else. I think that might be the most balanced midfield. I think Tede is the most suited player in terms of her style of passing and her defensive qualities to play deeper if we're going to keep doing this pseudo 4-3-3-4-2-3-1 type thing to Letty and we're constantly alternating the type of position they have, right? It's something to consider. I mean, it doesn't by any means lock anyone out. Still want to see Mike Day, still want to see lots of Zornoza. But I do wonder if that's kind of just the best midfield we have. And maybe this game, in terms of how Teddy was able to affect it when she came on, is kind of a point in her favor. I don't know if Todil will exactly see it this way, but I think for sure he does value Teddy quite a lot. Um, and he seems to value in what is her best positions in kind of deeper areas. So that to me is interesting. So you were right, Yash, that is quite interesting. I think what gets a lot less interesting is what happens after the second goal, which you've already described quite well. I I mean, we can just talk about Atenea. About this game, but I think really the season she's having as a whole, it's just, with Atenea for me, it's no doubt about the talent, right? It's kind of like with Vinicius. She can do things that few other footballers on earth can do in terms of getting the ball into danger areas, in terms of Maybe Athenea not really getting into as many dangerous goal-scoring situations as Vinicius did, but just in terms of what she can do with the ball and the, the offensive ceiling it gives you if she can be a consistent game-by-game end-product type of player, it completely changes the outlook of this team offensively, right? Because then you actually talk about, oh, we kind of replaced Marta Cardona if Athenea is able to get there. Remains to be seen whether she will do that across the season, but her start to the season has just been nothing short of excellent. And in these two legs in particular, she's dominated. And she played so well in this game. And I want to get an answer from you on this. I don't know who I would say was the better player over the two legs. Athena or Weir? Just, just give me one, one answer right now. You can justify it later. I just want one word. Weir or Athena, who was better over the course of the two legs? You have to pick. Pick. You have five seconds. Um, <laughs> uh, Weir. All right, you say weird, right? But it's hard, right? It's hard. I just wanted to make you do it. I wanted to make (laughs) you do it like that because I just wanted you to feel how hard it was. And for other people to to consider in that moment, because they would have had to pick as well, because by asking you, I was asking them as well. It's really hard because Athena was so good in this game that it just, you you, you sit back and like, where is she in terms of the ranking of the best players in this team? And I, I think we need more time to answer that. But Right now, she's looking really, really high and looking like she took a step forward from where she was last season. And I really hope that's the case because then the offense looks totally different, right? I mean, the ability she has in transition situations when she's not over-deliberating one versus one and just going with the flow and doing what she did on that goal where you know she faked left-right a million times ended it with a step over and then just blasted a shot into the top corner. She's a player that thrives on instinct. And it's about when you're a player who thrives on instinct, it's about 
it's not so much about conscious decision-making as it is getting the game time to just be able to better make instinctive decisions as things go on, right? To find yourself in the flow of the game and make things happen, but then also kind of just get better at those split-second judgments so that you're not losing the ball as much. You're not making the wrong pass. You're not making the wrong shot. There were still some moments where, especially in transition, where you're like, Athena's passing in transition could be better. There was one moment where she breaks away on the right. Really kind of a simple ball. She just needs to hit it firmly, put a bit of curve on it to clear the defender that's trying to intercept and Esther's on her way and she's not able to do it. Those are things that I think can be cleaned up, but just in terms of how she's finding a way to make an impact on the score sheet now, it does sort of feel that she's taking that next step, which is which is really, really exciting. What do you have to say about Athena? I mean, she, for me, she is like, she is entering, she's going to enter that world-class bracket. I wouldn't say she is there yet, but man, she is exciting. Like every time you watch her, you get that sense that something is going to happen, which very few players like make you feel that way every time they get on the ball. And she is relentless. Like she would fail a dribble, she would fail a pass, but the next time she gets on the ball, she is again trying to like embarrass the fullback once again, create that space and just deliver a better ball, a better pass. So, I mean, in terms of that, the the relentlessness of her approach, it, it's amazing. Like, it's amazing to watch. She's so skillful. I, I I think that this is going, we have to create a segment in the pod now where we just talk about Athenea, uh, something like Athenea Corner or something. But yeah, I mean, she, she's ridiculous, dude. The, the kind of season that she's having currently, the way she's able to impact the games, every single game so far, it's amazing what, what prospect we have on our hands. And it's not like she came to Madrid and became this. She was such an exciting player ever since, like, she joined us before she joined us as well. At Depor as well, like, poof, like, she's a talent, man. She's a talent. That is why we were so excited uh, when she joined. Like, she was one of the one of the first players that I wanted to, like, really see in the team. And I believe would uh, help us take that next step. And we are seeing that. She, she isn't afraid of uh whatever the opposition she is facing she is coming up against she'll fail she'll fail nine times but she'll go it go at it for another 10 so it's amazing to have such a player in like both of our teams like in the men's side you have Vinicius who is able to do that and in the women's side we have Athenea so it's it's really amazing it's really amazing to watch them do their thing on the ball if you remember much earlier in the season we were talking about Olga potentially kicking on and taking that next step. If Olga's there, and I think Olga's slightly more of a sure thing because I think she's a little bit more mature in terms of her trajectory than Athenea. But if it's Olga and Athenea, right? And a player we'll talk about real soon, Lucia, along with signing Weir, and the most uncertain thing, Naikari maybe finding some kind of form. That's actually a lot of pieces that raise our offensive ceiling, our offensive potential, without us having a particularly spectacular summer window when it came to forward options. I mean, the consensus is we kind of took a step back, right? We lost Aslani, we lost Cardona, we signed Feller, okay, right? And then it was mainly, all right, the midfield is what really strengthened. But with all these kind of like, 
developmental things going on with them, some players, some returning to form with the way Weir impacts the offense, we might be able to actually raise our offensive ceiling without having actually really signed anyone that you would consider a blockbuster. And I think, I think that's an amazing thing. I mean, there's a lot of things that need to come together. I would, if you wanted me to bet on the most sure thing, I really feel like Olga, this, I mean, this is a career, this is going to be a career season for her. I mean, when she came on, you could just tell different quality. I mean, I didn't think Spavo was necessarily poor offensively. I mean, I know people have her issues with her. I don't love some of the things she does in possession, but it's pretty clear Olga is just next level when it comes to all the things that she can do. And it, it was amazing the difference when she came on. So Olga, for me, is the sure bet. Atenea, I'm starting to feel pretty good about it. Weir is obvious what she provides. Naikari, I'd love to see her do what she did in the first leg more times. She looked fine in, in the second half. I mean, she had a couple of moments. I think you mentioned uh, in, when you were live tweeting about like a backheel nutmeg that she did. And then Lucia, who is the next player I want to talk about. Had her defensive troubles, but I think more of that was down to look the opponent she was facing. I think Josendal was the best player for Rosenborg on the night, probably across the two legs. It was also the, the nature of the scheme. But offensively, just really, really promising. I mean, the quality of her crossing was incredible. But it's beyond that. It's the stuff that I saw at Real Sociedad that I've been waiting for, where her positioning inside, her ball carrying, her rapid you know, one-touch, two-touch passing. The way I envisioned her when she came from Real Sociedad was a very complete offensive fullback who could contribute from build-up to the final third, who could just give us a lot of options, right? You mentioned Athenea being the player you were most excited about when we signed that window. I was very excited about her, don't get me wrong. But Lucia was the number one for me because I felt like this is the type of fullback that I love. I mean, I saw what she did with Natalia Arroyo and how she works so fluidly in that build-up system. And then I just feel like we didn't really see it that much, the way the, the disastrous way that season started, how weird everything was from then. It, it felt like it's taken a bit for her to adjust. And now, hopefully, it looks like she can, she's going to take that starting spot, make it hers, and let us really see who she is offensively, which, mind you, I don't think will be a new thing. But I don't think it's something Madridistas would have really seen at this club because I think that was more of a Real Sociedad thing. You've already said a bit about Lucia. I mean, I don't think I need to sell you on her at all. I think you're as high on her as I am, if not higher. What do you think about her performance today? Yeah, I mean, when we signed Lucia, one of the clear like uh, improvements that she could have, uh, she, that we envisioned her bringing into the into the side was her offensive contribution and the way she like carries the ball. She's an excellent ball carrier. Like I, I remember uh, doing an a piece on Olga, uh, the previous season, and I, I looked at ball carriers uh, among fullbacks, and Olga was at the at, at the top, um, along with, well, like I think one of the Barcelona fullbacks, uh, but very close to them was Lucia Rodriguez, and and we know how good her ball carrying is. She can like she can come in come inside and just carry the ball and break lines with it which is very important we today in this game we saw her crossing ability as well and there is a lot more in her locker that she can add to us offensively and make us even even more threatening and once 
once that once she starts to get these regular minutes she'll develop a synergy with her uh, uh wing partner and that is really exciting because i think like moving forward i don't know if feller uh, would gain the right right wing spot or it would be like athenia starting on the right and olga taking up the left spot uh, there are options there but as, as she starts to get minutes lucia starts to get minutes we'll see a synergy develop with the wing partner which will help her and the winger take that next step and just cause all sorts of trouble to the opposition backline and that is really exciting that is something that that is going to be like every madridista is going to love it when it happens we just have to be a little patient we have to keep slight patience to see that thing develop and we have to nurture it a bit but it's going to be amazing like we have such that is the thing like even if we'll probably end up winning no trophies again this season like i'm not going to uh, sorry to break everyone's dream but that is a, a very clear possibility that we might not win any silverware this season as well but the sort of exciting talent that we have in the team right now you really look forward to the games you really look forward to what athenia is going to do next game you really look forward to oh how feller and olga are going to pan out you really look forward to like a lot of things how our midfield is going to play out there is a lot to be excited about going into this in into this new season that i mean one can't help but just feel you know really excited about what the future holds and how these players develop and what sort of team we will have like one year from now or like one and a half year 18 months from now so it's 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 really exciting and uh, i'm pretty happy with with the sort of young players that we have in the ranks there are obvious improvements that we can do in the squad but the uh, the sort of differential talent that we have on the flanks and at at full back with lucia as well it's it's amazing it's amazing this might be the best we've ever been and initially you'd think because of that midfield but it's looking like because of growth from some key players that we've been waiting for so good stuff all exciting stuff i think we're basically at the end of major things for the match we can just run through whatever notes we have so we have the double sub in the 66th minute i think it was when zornoza and seva came off for olga and feller olga moved to left back and weir came into midfield because it was zornoza coming off feller went to the right wing athenia went to the left and we went to a 4231 with maite tere double pivot 76th minute toril makes another double sub with ester and weir coming off for Naikari and Freya with Maite becoming the the number 10 and Freya joining the double pivot. And I don't want to say nothing happened from here on because there were some attacks, there were some chances. Rosenborg even had a couple counterattacks, but it kind of felt like most of the relevant stuff had finished. What are the final things you want to say about this game? Yeah, I mean nothing major happened especially after the second uh, set of subs, uh, I would say. just like a couple of magical moments where uh, in one moment like in the 82nd minute uh, i think maite just is able to get on the ball and dribble her way through this crowd of uh, defenders and just before like she is able to get a shot of the ball is taken off of her uh, that was really nice uh, to see her like that uh, then <laughs> i like tweeted about it as well 
Nikar is back heel nutmeg. I, I mean, if you haven't seen that, uh, I have like quote tweeted uh, a tweet on my profile. It's it was really nice. I mean, I really like nutmeg, so it was really uh, it was really clean the way she did it. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it was really really nice to see. Uh, apart from that, like Olga's performance, we have discussed basically, but uh, Olga on the left looked like a really Olga is really explosive. We know we know that, and her partnership with Athena on the on the left left flank was really exciting because Athena, uh, since she is a right footer, she came in, and Olga is really good on the overlap, so that just naturally worked uh, worked out really well. Because Athena would like cut in and Olga would be there on the overlap all the time. And Olga in herself is also a really good dribbler. So that really worked out. Like Olga had a good game. I, I felt like when she came on. Feller too looked sharp. Did some good things. Uh, had some good touches. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't like a really an explosive performance. But she's just coming back from injury. And she will be a vital piece for us moving forward. So it was a good performance from the subs as well i would say uh, especially from olga she really had an impact she was able to like carve out some opportunities uh, by entering the box nothing much to add from my notes uh, i think all right i think that about wraps up our discussion we have a question from a dedicated listener izier5 at izier5 on twitter the username salazar very, very active, always interacts with podcasts, the things we tweet, huge Real Madrid Feminino fan from abroad. I don't know from where exactly, but he's kind of in the same boat as us in terms of being an outsider to the Spanish crowd. We did, uh, I think you were on, Yash, we did a space on Real Madrid Feminino last season where, look, if it's like Isa or one of them, they can get like 150 people in easily. There was like maybe five people with us until Isa came in and gave us a little bit of a boost. But but that was nice and it was cool of IZR5 to organize that. He's got a question for us. And uh, it has a little bit to do with some of the RFEF stuff and all that, but it's about Barca. So let me just quote it exactly. With the recent injuries Barca are having to Alexia, Aitana, etc. And the issues with the Spanish players and the RFEF. Do you think Barcelona could be there for taking the season? Could the mental and physical terror and wear affect their performances, hence shortening the gap between them and the likes of us, Atleti, and Real Sociedad? I feel with everything going on, especially the issue with the RFEF and the core Barca slash Spanish players, it could affect them. I think the thing with injuries and incorporating the new signings and all of that I think you are seeing it have some of an effect on Barca already. I mean, I've watched two of their league games and it's not like they were in any danger of losing, but it didn't really feel like the typical, we could threaten to win eight or nine nil these games. And I mean, I especially felt the Villarreal one was a bit weird because it took a long while for them to get going. And then they actually ended up conceding and they kind of had to go from there. And I mean, they ended up winning four one, but I think you can tell that they're not at their peak. The thing is, is like they're still winning these games quite comfortably, right? They're winning in a way that if we won that way or Atleti won that way, it would be astonishing. Like we'd be like, my God, we're, we're going to potentially challenge for the title. That's the issue here. The, the gap is still so huge. And the quality of players they brought in that are still trying to adjust is so great. Like 
I, I mean, they're going to get, especially Aitana is going to come back. Like, it's going to get to a point where, especially with Walsh, I mean, already looks like she's she's integrating really quickly, but they're going to find their balance. And I think, you know, around 12, 15 game mark in the season and take off from there. And they're really not going to look back. I think what's going to happen, partly because I don't think they care about this record anymore. I don't think they'll go undefeated, winning all the games in the league again, like they did last season. So maybe because of that, they might drop the Copa de la Reina in terms of they might over-rotate. It. But they're not dropping the league. That's just not happening, um, despite those types of issues. Um, the Champions League remains to be seen. I think losing Alexia, you can already tell the impact. But in the Champions League, no matter who you bring in, you're just never going to be as good without the best player in the world in the lineup. And I think that could hurt them there. But it's not like any of the other Spanish sides are a bigger threat to win the Champions League, right? We're talking about Leon being the main one um, and, and possibly PSG, you know, who, who always look good in that competition. So, yeah, I, I guess that's my end. Wolfsburg, Yash, big yeah. Wolfsburg fan, really convinced by them. Despite their defense being non-existent, um, I, will, I will accept that because of Lena Oberdorf. So, yeah, I mean, those are the teams you'd be talking about in terms of actually troubling Barca because of injury issues and, and all of that. I don't think, and I could be completely wrong here, right? I mean, I, I don't live inside the minds of the players, but I don't think the RFEF thing is going to affect their league play. It could. I mean, Irene Paredes, in all likelihood, doesn't seem like she's handling this this well. I mean, her reasoning for not being on the, on the email that was sent, asking for dialogue with the RFEF and the whole 15 players thing, it was because she, I mean, she just couldn't really handle the scrutiny right now, right? When, when it initially happened, you remember people kind of put it on Irene and said she was the ringleader and she didn't quite enjoy that. And I think she's taking it hard. And certainly I think you have to consider that. But I think there's the other effect where I think you could have the siege mentality, especially because Barca has very clear issues with the RFEF. Like they're the one club that seemed to kind of be a little bit more openly antagonistic with them, specifically because they did not like the way Vilda handled Barca players and them getting injured on international duty. So I think you could create this siege mentality thing where they come back to Barca and they feel very much at home. They feel like this is where they're back. And they're going to be like, all right, if we're not on the national team anymore, we can just absolutely give everything we have here and go and win things. So it might actually give them more you know, of an impetus and more rest and all of that to be able to perform for Barca. I mean, I feel like there's a lot that still is here to play out because when the players came back and made their statements, it wasn't like they were saying, we want to leave the team forever. I mean, that's not even what we were saying. It was that right now we refuse this call up as kind of a form of leverage to try to get some change here. So I guess that's my answer to the question. Yash, you have anything in response to that? I agree with pretty much what everything you have said, because I don't think they are going to uh, end up losing the league or like there would be that massive upper drop off from them. Yeah. The, these things might affect players on an individual basis a bit, but I, I feel like, the gap, as you mentioned, is, is still pretty huge to be like for this to be a very significant factor, even with injuries, the replacement that they have are still like pretty high quality. <laughs> like Walsh is like one of the best midfielders in the world and they have her and uh, yeah, replacing Alexia and is is tough for the season. But that will more show in, in the Champions League than in the league. I, I think like league is still most probably there so sorry to break hearts but that is how it is 
a worthwhile question though. It's it's always good to wonder when we can make the leap, how close we are to Barca. And I think it'll be pretty interesting. I think the first half of the season will be the more interesting one in terms of the league because they have not figured out everything in terms of how they want to play and who goes where quite clearly. And I think that's going to take a while. Final thing we'll address because, I mean, we, we haven't talked about on the podcast about this situation because the last one we did was the Champions League one and a lot of stuff has happened since there. I mean, I plan to address it versus the, the podcast on the Granadilla game, but that game never happened. So I think it would just take too long to rehash every single point like we do sometimes with certain situations. I think the coverage has been good enough. And I think because it went international news, I mean, you can go to articles on the New York Times and stuff and see, like, it's not just on us to translate everything. But in terms of the specific Real Madrid side of things, the big talking point was that where are the Real Madrid players in this? And so initially, right, there was an initial thing where it was, it seemed like all of the players were going to come together to kind of make the statement and say, they were, they say that they never said we explicitly want Vilda out, but I assume it's kind of like in a situation where things need to improve and like, we're not saying Vilda needs to leave, but he's not doing a good job, which, you know, I kind of understand what they're saying in that don't paint it that way. But on the other hand, it's kind of what you're asking for. Anyway, there was that whole initial thing, right? Where news was coming out, was going to be all the squad coming together. And then Vilda and the RFF reacted. Vilda had his individual chats with players and it soon came out that there was a split that apparently some players were not on board and there was like rumors that the Madrid players were not on board, blah, 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 whatever, whatever. And then we have the situation where this was, the players never intended to make this public, by the way. I think that's getting lost on this. The RFEF took a private internal communication, threw it out to the press to control the narrative and, you know, get all their dogs in the media, which they dutifully did to, you know, to start barking out whatever they wanted to say. But this private communication sent by 15 players saying enough is enough. The way you're handling things is damaging our emotional well-being. We can't go on like this. We can't come up to the next international call-up. And notably, no Real Madrid player, and there's a lot of Real Madrid players who are eligible for Spain, have played for Spain, no Real Madrid player was on it. I think the only real answer we have now, and it was kind of confirmed by, you know, sourcing and reporting that basically Real Madrid told Real Madrid players not to be on that email. They recommended to them not to be on it. And as to why that would be the case is really up to speculation. And uh, you can speculate. I think there are some theories that are more interesting and seem more valid than others. But the truth is we don't have a definitive answer and we probably won't until something new comes out. The most compelling was that at Vilda, you know, the, one of the original clubs he coached, Ana Rosel was a player at that club. and. Those players at that club, the staff and everything, before Vilda made his leap to the, the Spanish youth teams, they ended up having a good impression for him, for, of him, and that seems to have lasted. There was a good article on it, which I'll link um, in the show notes, that kind of laid this out. Um, and I, I think that's about it in terms of why Real Madrid would do this. Some people cite the policy, Real Madrid are not allowed to speak to the media, but that doesn't really make sense in this when it's a private email communication with the RFEF. I don't think Real Madrid's policy is players cannot speak to the federation that they play for. <laughs> like that doesn't make any sense. What it's specifically about is really is about giving interviews, right? I mean, Tony Kroos and his brother, I don't know if you know this, Yash, they do their own podcast, <laughs> just the two of them. 
they they just do their own podcast and they just say stuff maybe sometimes stuff they shouldn't say um i mean it's in german so it's not like i go and listen to it but yeah i, I don't think that really applies here for there to be like and i think the fact that there had to be an explicit rec- recommendation for them not to be on it i think says it's something else whether it's about real madrid not wanting to be in the controversy or what Barca fans think about Real Madrid and the RFEF being best friends somehow, despite the RFEF slapping us in the face with the Lopetegui thing. The most compelling thing I've heard so far is the Ana Rosel thing, and that's literally it. So I would say is, you know, feel free to speculate responsibly, but let's not act like we have the entire picture here. What is clear, though, is Real Madrid stopped the players from doing it. And... um it's already going being quite a long podcast, so I'll just wrap it up with saying I'm not pleased with that decision at all. Um, I think this is a really powerful opportunity for there to be full solidarity with everyone who wanted to be, you know, in solidarity with the with the 15 to make a statement. And the RFF are very much using the fact that there are other players who weren't on it to, you know, create a rift and you know try to control the media narrative. There are others like Jenny who posted her four-page thing explanation. That's you know that's her own thing, but we have no idea what the Real Madrid players' tents are because they're not allowed to in any way really seem to be involved with this. And I find it really difficult to believe that no Real Madrid player is not on the side of the 15 players. I mean, it's it's really not like we have the Real Madrid Barcelona rivalry from 2011 to 2013 that we had them. Re- I mean, it's nothing like that. I mean, you have some of these Real Madrid players who are best, best friends and more with some of these Barca players. So yeah, that's just how I'll end it. Josh, any, any thoughts on that? Like you mentioned, I, I agree with everything you've said. And I feel like this could have been a really powerful like moment for Spanish football as well, because Spanish football has been struggling with this for a while. It's not a new problem for them. It has been a while and a change has been uh, required at, at that level and that has never happened. Even with the changes, the, the changes that have come in are just as bad and essentially there has been no improvement. So this could really be a very powerful moment for the players to like stick together and bring about the change that they deserve, bring about the improvement that they deserve. So it, it, It's a little, you know... I, I don't like this policy for whatever reason it is. I don't know. Like you mentioned, we can only speculate. But yeah, I would have liked for our players to be allowed to do that because I definitely think like, um, I mean, all of them would would have stood in solidarity with, with the cause because the cause is really for, the cause is essentially what they have been fighting for for a very long time, not just them, the generations before them as well. So yeah, it's it's disappointing, but. I mean, we cannot change that. It, if it's a club policy, it, it is something that you have to just accept. And about the reasons, you can only speculate. So, yeah. Yeah, the final thing, I said final thing so many times, but really the final thing is like, I don't blame any of the Real Madrid players for not breaking with that. I mean, I've heard some criticism of that. I mean, what are they supposed to do? I'm not assuming every, I mean, there could be players certainly who are not with them. And then you have to judge out on your own. The fact is we don't know, but, I don't know how you can get mad at these players for, for going against their club. I mean, what are they supposed to do? Antagonize both the RFEF and their club against them? I mean, it, I mean, it's a completely untenable situation, right? It, and that's why I'm, I'm really more disappointed in the club than anything else by taking that decision. But 
yeah, that, that is the final thing I have to say on this. All right. All done. Be surprised if this pod doesn't clear an hour. We'll see when I have to stick the audio files together, what it looks like. Yash, as always, pleasure. And uh, hopefully we come back to you this weekend to talk about a league game or is the international break coming? No, it, it's it's a while. No, I think it's another week of games and then... Okay, uh, cool. Always the scariest question in the world is the international break coming. Yeah, no, October 1st is the next match day. Um, I just knew it was coming at some point. So I think it's after next week, actually. So yeah, we will come back October 2nd, Sunday versus Athletic Bilbao. That's a big match. Until then, peace out. Always great to have you guys listening. Always great to have Yash in the pod. A la Madrid. A la Madrid.